Functional Podcast. I'm Ivy, the younger sister, and I hope y'all will forgive me today because depression is kicking my ass super hard at the moment. And I am Autumn, the older sister, and I cannot draw a fish under pressure. (laughs) Autumn told me that this was going to be her fact right before we got started, and I have to tell you that it is the first time I have genuinely laughed in probably over a week because it's so, such a specific fact and I desperately need to know the backstory on that now, Autumn. Okay, so you know like the basic fish where it's like you start out and then you go down and you create this oval and you come back and then you go back up, just like a simple little kindergartner drawing of a fish, right? Yeah. Well, I was trying to do something in one of the site classes I was teaching to relate to something. I don't even remember what it was, but I was drawing on the board and I was trying to draw a fish and I'll, I've got, you know, 25 people just staring at me as I'm like trying to make this simple shape. I could not do it. I could not. It was like three X's. There were double circles. I don't know, but I realized I cannot draw a fish under pressure. And if I've, I've actually had this conversation with my boyfriend that if like, you know, our lives depend on me drawing a fish, we're done for. So if ever anybody <laughs> breaks in and we're held hostage and is like, one of you has to draw a fish if you want to live, he's going to have to step up because I cannot draw a fish under pressure. <laughs> I don't know why. It just, it, I can't. So yeah, that's, that's just a random fact about me. That's what I got. That made me laugh so hard that I cried. I'm s- <laughs> I mean, I was probably on the verge of crying anyway because depression, but like, that's a, a pretty good reason to cry, though. I will take that. I will take laughing so hard that I cry over the, over the alternative. And now I'm really curious if I could draw a fish under pressure. I want to know if this is truly and genuinely a challenge of humanity. <laughs> I, I I I think you should find the opportunity. You have to wait until there's like a lot of people just staring at you. Like at least a dozen people just dependent on you to move forward with whatever task because you need to do this. I think that the last time that I had a bunch of people staring at me was when I did karaoke. So now all I can imagine is me singing karaoke and then trying to trying to draw a fish afterward. Yes. I, I would that's suggest awesome. before awesome. it because that puts more pressure on because everybody's waiting for you to start the karaoke and you need to be like, wait just a second, everybody, if I could get your attention, I'm going to be drawing a fish <laughs> before I get started. And then that will be the appropriate amount of pressure to know whether or not you can honestly produce a fish. So, Well, I mean, I, I don't I don't know, though, because like I'm actually pretty decent at karaoke because mom really focused on teaching me how to sing. So I feel like making it really awkward afterward by being like, and before I leave the stage, I wish to draw you a fish. <laughs> yes. I, I just, I don't, I feel like either scenario works well. I mean, there's a lot of pressure beforehand because everybody's just waiting for you to get started. But I feel like doing it afterward, after everybody's like cheered you on for singing this really high energy song and then you're awkwardly trying to draw a fish. <laughs> I don't know. I feel both, both, uh, both scenarios have their magic to them. I love them both. 
this this is true and and while it's not like a wonderful segue i'm I'm gonna i'm gonna key in on the word pressure to segue us into our topic today and as you all will know this is one of our bonus episodes and we are doing this bonus episode in celebration of valentine's day uh if you want to call it a celebration not sure about that but talking about the pressure of relationships and not necessarily the relationship itself but the pressure that society puts on you to be in a relationship. And and sometimes it is almost exactly like that trying to draw a fish under pressure. I mean, a relationship sometimes, like I'm not saying it's not work, but it can be something fairly easy or fairly simple, but you get all of this societal pressure, all these views, all these ideas, all this stuff staring you down. And now all of a sudden, good God, it's almost impossible to have a relationship. So that that is my segue into our topic for our bonus episode. One one note before we get fully into our topic for today. This is the first bonus episode that we have ever done. So I do want to let you guys know that this is going to be a two-parter. So you're getting part one today, uh, actually for Valentine's Day, and then you will be getting your regularly scheduled episode on Wednesday, and that will be part two. My my amazing segue, you just you just kicked it right in the tires and it fell over. That's just, just what happened right there. <laughs> I'm I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry, but I felt like it would be pertinent to let people know. But yes, I did ruin your segue and I apologize for that. See, relationships are hard, any kind of relationship, <laughs> including the one with your sister. Or <laughs> she ruins your beautiful segue after you talked about the pressure of drawing fish. Okay. And related the pressure of drawing fish to be to being in a relationship. I don't know. So I, I feel you've brought it back. So you know that's that's redeeming. So, yeah, I, am, so to- I am still a monster though. I am a segue <laughs> killing monster. Okay. All right. So but yes, now we can we can, talk, we can start talking about our actual topic. And our first part of that is talking about where we even get our ideas about what love and relationships actually look like and are and how they work. Yes. And so let's go ahead and talk about that, Ivy. Where where do you get some of your ideas about what love is supposed to look like? Uh, I, I think for me, the first indication that I got about what love is supposed to look like was the relationships that I saw modeled around us, like our parents' relationship and other family members and people in our town That gave me a super warped idea about about what relationships are supposed to look like. Uh, It it won't for everybody. Some people have really awesome relationships modeled for them, and some of us get really shitty relationships modeled for us. But I think that is a big, big part of how we as people identify what relationships are and what love is between two people, romantically speaking. Yeah. And and like you said, I mean, that really runs the gamut, especially when you're a kid and you don't really understand what normal means or what healthy looks like. And so you just see this whole spectrum from good to bad, especially when you have a trauma background. And so you you may see everything from downright abusive to maybe a couple at church that's absolutely loving and adoring. So it's a really weird gamut there. And, and I think when we're talking childhood, you also have to start talking about fairy tales, you know, Disney princesses and happily ever after. And you just go to, you know, take a, a, a 
pee in the woods or whatever and you run into a prince and then you married and you're happily ever after i think that was a big disney one of you know i'm pretty sure that's the exact <laughs> plot of sleeping beauty if i'm not mistaken i i love that your brain went to peeing in the woods as a, as a way of meeting your prospective partner in life i don't think i've seen that in disney but i now i wish that i had because that is that is at least a more accurate uh, a more accurate representation of what it would actually look like because Disney princesses just go into the woods and start singing to wildlife and then the wildlife sings back to them or dances with him or, or I don't know, brings them presents. That seems to happen a lot too when Disney princesses sing wildlife brings them presents. And as much as that would be wonderful and amazing, that does not happen. I feel like you are more likely to meet your prospective partner by going into the woods to take a piss. And, and I feel right there, like even if you do go into the into the woods and, and you meet your prospective partner by peeing in the woods, it's also a little creepy because why is that person hanging out in the woods waiting for somebody to pee? I'm just saying. Um, yeah, I, I think maybe we're starting to get a, a little far off, a little far okay. off from where people get their ideas about relationships. But yes, I, I, Disney definitely plays a big factor into those ideas. It, probably especially for little girls who more than likely watch more of the Disney princess movies than boys who probably watch, I don't know, Cars. Pixar yeah, but the thing movies. is, like. With that, though, I I'm going to say on the other end of that, boys have a definite perspective and in, in the entertainment value of relationships out there, too. I mean, you've got your, you know, your Fast and the Furious type movies, which there's nothing against them, but you have these definite expressions of masculinity. And even as you start getting older, if the kid's interested in James Bond or some of the blow em up action adventures, women are just kind of this disposable thing. Or if they are treated, you know, like non-disposables, they're these wonderful, intelligent people that all you have to do is come up and flex your bicep and the girl will just fall at your feet. So, I mean, I think boys have their own relationships modeled and I think they screw them up just as bad. And I think part of that also goes into the societal gender roles that we get established. I mean, that entertainment goes right into societal gender roles of what a boy should act like or what a man should act like. And I, I do think that's true, although I do think the entertainment industry is starting to shift because I, I am starting to see more strong female characters in movies. I don't necessarily know, though, that it's getting a whole lot healthier. One way or the other, the entertainment industry overall gives you a whole lot of unrealistic expectations about relationships and a whole lot of unhealthy ideas about it, regardless of which person has the power. Because a lot of a lot of things, it's like one or the other has all the power in the relationship. And there's not there's not a whole lot of like equality or showing compromise of of any kind. I mean, maybe because it's boring to have to show a relationship that's just functional and healthy. There's no drama in it. And so the entertainment industry is geared towards teaching us that relationships have some level of drama constantly. I mean, look at romantic comedies. Inevitably, over the course of a romantic comedy, there's going to be a huge blow up for absolutely no reason. Or they just get mad at each other for the stupidest shit. And then they come together somehow in the end and it's all happily ever after. It's not, that's not realistic. Nothing that you see is truly a good representation of what actually a healthy functional relationship would look like. And, and I think part of that though is, I mean, 
in some ways, the entertainment industry helps to shape culture, but I think also that goes the reverse, where culture helps to shape the entertainment industry. And I think part of the reason that entertainment industry displays all this is also because our culture has all this. You know, we have all this drama and we have all these fights and we have all these complete power struggles. And I think a big piece of that is because for the most part in our culture, and, and this is beginning to change a little bit, there is one right way to have a relationship. And I think religion really plays into that. And usually it is this man and this woman meet, they fall in love, they marry, and they have babies. And that's the only way you can have a relationship. And, and now we're starting to expand that a little bit. And maybe it's, you know, this woman and this woman meet, or this man and this man meet. But you don't see anything really out there about, what about polyamorous relationships? There are people that do open relationships just fine. What about people that refuse to ever marry? What about people that are happy changing their relationship every two to three years? You know, there's only one right way to do a relationship. And I think that's a really big, really big thing in our society that's really driven by religious, whatever religion. They all have these ideas about what a relationship should look like. And that really influences our culture and what we have to work with. And when you're stuck with this one right way, I can tell you right now, one right way is not going to work well for, what is it, 7 billion people? So there's going to yeah. be a lot of people struggling trying to make this one right way work for them. And it's not going to well, work. And and religion also plays into what you had mentioned before about the gender roles that we have, because in a lot of religions, and I'm not going to speak for all of them because I'm not an expert on religion, but I was raised Mormon and I don't I don't have anything specifically against the Mormon church, but I do see something in Mormonism that I have seen in a lot of other religions as well, which is very specific gender roles where the man provides for the family and the woman stays home and takes care of the kids. And that's, again, something we're starting to see shift where it's becoming increasingly more normalized for maybe the woman to be the breadwinner and the the man to be, you know, stay at home husband, take care of the kids or both partners working. A lot of families now are in a situation where both partners are working because it's just necessary to financially survive. But religion, I, I think, does shape the way that we view relationships in more than one way. That one right way, like you were saying, where it's like it can only exist between a man and a woman. And then also as it pertains to gender roles that we have that are outdated. And I, I think culture also plays into that. And even like culture and religion kind of go hand in hand, but you also have cultural standards. You know, some countries are more progressive in their views of like gender equality. And so it's those, in those cultures, a, a woman is encouraged to have a career. Whereas in other cultures, their entire culture can be completely controlled by religious extremists. Not only should women not be working, but women shouldn't even be showing their faces and women are property and all of these things. So that, I mean, if you're, if you're moving to a country that's very progressive, that's going to be a huge culture shock. And it's going to be very confusing as to what is acceptable and right and okay for relationships to look like. So it, all of that kind of plays in together, the gender roles and religion and just culture based on where you live in the world and how much of a factor religion plays into that. I'm, I'm sure there are other things that play into that, into those gender roles as well, but religion definitely plays a huge factor in that for sure. 
It, it definitely does. And then even when you get outside of religion and you start talking about, you know, psychology or therapy or self-help, even with that, I feel like there is still this idea that this, that you can write a, a book, that you can write an instruction manual for a relationship. And, and in my mind, that's just, it's not something you can do. Everybody is so individual and our needs are so individualized. And what's going to work isn't going to work for this couple and that couple and every couple or triple or quadruple or whatever it happens to be. But that's, I think even when we get into therapy and self-help, you still start seeing this, well, there's the right way. If your relationship is healthy, then you would, you know, if you were an actually, you know, grown or enlightened or whatever, then you would whatever. And, and I think even once you get into self-help, you still get this perspective that there is a, a right way to relationship. Yeah. I, I have read a ton of self-help books. There are a lot of things that you see that makes it seem like, well, this should just be easy and you just develop these skills and then your, your relationship will be magical and wonderful and it will work. And a lot of times that's oversimplification because it doesn't take into consideration you know, maybe whether your partner is willing to develop those skills as well. And some of the skills that you're supposed to develop get almost so specific that it can feel like a, like a restraint. You can't just rely on self-help to tell you exactly what a healthy relationship should look like and when you should get out of a relationship because life is not perfect and people are not perfect and relationships are not perfect. You're going to have struggles and you're going to constantly have to adjust how you and your partner communicate and how you balance things like power in your relationships. And while self-help books can be helpful, they can give you some general ideas to go by. If you try to live completely by the, the things that you read in those books, it's, you're going to have a really hard time maintaining relationships with other people because that other person may not be willing to develop that same skill set. Maybe it wouldn't even work for them if, even if they tried to. So you don't want to get too rigid about following the rules because that is one thing I did see a lot in self-help culture when it came to relationships. And self-help culture in general is like, well, there's these rules, there's these steps, there's these things that you do, and that will make everything better. And if you don't do these things and you don't follow these steps and you don't follow these rules, you can't be happy or you can't be fulfilled or you can't have a happy relationship. So I think that's really damaging in a lot of ways as well. It, it definitely is. And I think all of these, these pieces really contribute to what we're talking about today, which is the myths that are out there about relationships. And, and I think this is very literally a myth. There's so many myths about relationships. And just to give you an idea, just to throw out that actual definition, you know, when you look in the dictionary, a myth is a traditional story, you know, especially one that explains a natural or social phenomenon. And it's also considered a widely held but false belief or idea. And, and all these things about relationships are very much that. They are traditional stories that we still believe in and we still have bought into, but a lot of them are very false for specific relationships. So yes, they may work for some person or this couple or that triple or whatever, but they're not going to work for everybody. And so that makes them false things. And so I really want to dive into what are some of these actual common myths that we see out there with relationships and why are they problematic? And, and I think the very first big one, and we talked about that with a little bit with Disney and those fairy tales, is happily ever 
after. I, I feel like everybody nowadays has to stand up and recognize that happily ever after is a myth. I, I think most people know that once they get past a certain age in life as a rule, some people hold on to the hope that it, that it can exist for longer. But I think that some of the happily ever after stuff is cultural, but I think also some of the happily after stuff is just tied into age. Like there was a part of me that, it, that at one time believed in happily ever after. I didn't know what that really meant, but I believed in it and thought that like love is a magical fix for all of your problems. And once you find the right person for you, you find your perfect partner, your life is magical and wonderful from that point forward. And then you get older and you have real experiences and you realize that, oh shit, relationships are actually kind of challenging. And even outside of the context of my relationship, being in a relationship did not fix all of my other problems. I still have problems. I still have daily challenges you know, being in a relationship does not fix my problems with my family. Being in a relationship does not mean that I will never have problems at work. Love is not a fix for everything. And I think that's something that most people develop an understanding of as they get older. And then for some people, it can be disillusioning to a, to a damaging point for them because they really believed in that ideal of happily ever after. And then not having it not being able to attain it will make them you know, cycle through relationships or always be pursuing this idea of happily ever after that's just not possible. Or it makes them feel very pessimistic about relationships and they, they may be more likely to settle for a person that they don't actually love because they, they realize, well, happily ever after is not possible. So why even bother? You know, I'll just find a partner who looks good on paper. So I, I think in that way, the idea of happily ever after can be incredibly damaging in the long run. Uh, and it should not be something that we ever give children the ideas feasible. Like I think it's it's our responsibility as we get older to give you know younger people a realistic idea of what love is. Not that love is horrible and not that love is, or that relationships are always hard or always bad but that happily ever after is a myth and it doesn't exist and that there's more to love and there's more to relationships than just you find the right person and then your life is magical from that point forward. And, and I think also that happily ever after, at least the adult version of that, really draws towards that, pushes you towards that first love. So when you get that happily ever after, it's that idea that you're in love forever after. And in love is really a neurochemical response. You know, that, that first time you fall in love with somebody, you know, you get the, the, the butterflies in your stomach and that heartbeat race. And what that is, is you're, you're neurochemically different at that point. Your reward hormones are like firing like crazy and you're so receptive. So everything feels good and everything feels pleasurable. But really what that is, is that is a temporary imbalance. And it's there for genetic reasons to drive you to mate and to drive you to connect so that you can better pass on to the next generation. But that is not a lasting phase. That's like all of a sudden having a temperature of 105 and then thinking it's going to last forever. It's not. It's an abnormality. It's something your body is doing to to help you with something, but you don't want that to last forever. You're going to wear your neurochemicals out. You're going to wear out your adrenals. You're going to wear out your digestive system if you constantly have butterflies in it. But I do think that's a big piece of that happily ever after on the adult side is that you'll always have the fireworks and butterflies 
And that's not true. That's a beginning of the relationship thing. And that will die down. And so if you're always thinking, oh, well, that's what love is supposed to be. I'm always supposed to be in love. You're always going to be going through relationships, cycle after cycle after cycle, wondering why you're falling out of love again and again. When you're not falling out of love, your body is just reestablishing a balance. And what you're thinking of as love is simply partially a, a neurochemical reaction. So I, I think that's kind of the adult side of happily ever after as well, even taking away just some of the childish or the childlike stories around it. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. As a side note that kind of goes along with that, when I first started dating my current partner, Calvin, he let me know early on, just so you know, nobody in my family gets married until they've been with their partner for five years because you need the first three years for that, for that initial chemistry to wear off and the next couple of years to make sure that you're actually going to be able to like each other and work with each other going forward. At that point in my life, I was totally fine with that because I've been married twice already and I got married too quick both times. I definitely made some mistakes on that front, going after the butterflies and the fireworks and, and all of that stuff, going after that idea of happily ever after. At this point in my life, when Calvin said that, I thought, great, man, that takes a lot of pressure off of the relationship because we're actually going to take the time to get to know each other and make sure that this is actually going to work long term. Because when those butterflies start to fade, some people are just not compatible anymore at all. And other people will continue to be compatible. But the way that you feel towards your partner is going to shift and change over time. It's just inevitable. And you may go through periods of time where you get a little bit of those butterflies back. I still have moments three years in with Calvin where I still like will get that butterflies in the stomach feeling and feel really in love with him. But that's not a constant state of being for me the way that it was early on in the relationship. The way that our neurochemistry has developed a feedback loop between the two of us has definitely shifted in a lot of ways over time. And our life circumstances have and our mental health state in, as individuals has over time. So yeah, that idea that happily ever after looks like butterflies and fireworks and rainbows and kittens forever is definitely a lie that can lead a lot of people to give up on relationships too soon. And I think, and this is jumping ahead a little bit in our, in our, our kind of notes today, but I think this ties in really well to also to the idea of sexual attraction, that if you love somebody, you're always going to be sexually attracted to them. And one of the things that you said right there is, you know, we have other things going on and we have baggage and we have issues and we have life. And that's really the reality of it is when you get into a relationship and you pass those first few days or weeks or months or however long that that neurochemical blast lasts, the reality is, is you have other things going on. You know, it's not just you and the partner forever. And that's all that exists in the world. There's also car problems and there's also back history and there's also you have to go to work and there's also your cat is sick or your child needs something. There's a million other things going on in your life. And so the idea that just attraction alone, you know, that that love connection alone with you and your partner is always going to result in sexual attraction or a high libido, I think plays right into that. And that's another myth out there that if it's really love, you'll always feel intense sexual attraction to your partner. And that's so not true. I mean, just hormones alone for women, the, the way your body goes from cycle to cycle, what it goes through when you have a child, what it goes through when you start getting premenopausal, what it goes through when you're menopausal, all of that drives 
your sexual attraction because sex, genetically speaking, is your genetics way of trying to have you make more genetics. It, it's trying to get baby genes out there. It has nothing to do with, oh my gosh, I really love somebody. And, and as humans, we can redefine sex and make it about love. But ultimately, that genetic drive is to procreate. That's what sex is at its most base level is procreation. And there's going to be a lot of other factors driving whether or not your body wants to procreate. You know, how much stress are you under? Where are your hormone levels at? Are you actually in a position in your life where you could comfortably take care of progeny? That's a lot of things out there too. Yeah. And I, I also want to make note that depression plays a big factor for both men and women in their overall sex drive. If you or your partner or both are going through a period of significant depression, chances are at least one of you is not going to be interested in sex at all. Possibly both of you won't be interested in sex. And that doesn't mean that the relationship is dying. And it's important to cultivate other forms of intimacy with your partner and to understand that intimacy definitely, definitely means more than just sex, which I think culturally, societally, we're starting to understand that. But that's still in some ways kind of a new concept. And sex still ends up becoming a hang up in a lot of relationships in the sense that let's say one partner is going through a period of depression or they're having hormonal issues or they're going through grief or there's something that's affecting their sex drive. And the other partner feels as though that is a reflection on themselves, that there is now something wrong with me and my partner no longer loves me because they don't want to have sex with me because culturally we have tied this idea of sex and love and intimacy all together and you can't look at just sex as as an indication of the health of your relationship and if your partner is not interested in sex or you're not interested in sex that does not mean that the relationship is broken or that there's even anything really wrong with the relationship necessarily you can go through periods of time where maybe you don't have sex for weeks or months or maybe even years, but your relationship can be really strong in other ways. That is an, that's entirely possible. And I think it's important for people to, to wrap their heads around that idea that sex is not, an, is not necessarily an indication of relationship health overall. It can be problematic, but it's not always a problem. And you or your partner's sex drive is not an indication that one or the other of you is no longer attractive to your mate. That doesn't necessarily mean that at all. It, it definitely doesn't. And even on the flip side of that, when you start talking about, again, just for me, like normal cycles of my hormones every month, or if you start talking some of the abnormal stuff, like when you get into hypomania or mania, on that side, you get sex drive like crazy. And that may not match up with your partner at all. And so it's not that you love them more and they love you less because you want sex more frequently. It's just your body and your circumstances are driving totally different things. And so even that idea that, you know, your sex drive is going to match, I think that's a huge myth out there too, that, you know, it's just going to work. And it doesn't. I mean, when it comes to sex, that's a really, really big thing. And you do have to do a lot of work to make that mesh up. And there's a lot of communication that goes into that. And I think, I mean, I'll just go right into that point too, is that another large myth out there is that you don't need communication in a relationship. You know, in a good relationship, the other person should just know. And you hear this, oh, it drives me nuts. You, you see it on the 
the sitcoms and the romantic comedies, and it's this cliched joke, you know, well, if you really loved me, you would know. Why would they know? Because if they really loved you, they'd become psychic? That, that does not make sense to me. It frustrates me so much. It's one of the reasons I detest so many romantic comedies is because that that blow up that always happens that Ivy was talking about earlier is almost always about a communication failure. One person sees something that the other person did or said or texted or whatever. And do they talk about it? Do they ask the person about it? No. Why would you talk to someone? That's bloody fucking insane. I'm just going to sit at home and eat ice cream and cry about that. That drives me nuts. I would, I would like to make probably. one correction really quick on that. <laughs> okay. it, is not, it is not most of those blow-ups are because of communication. I have watched a lot of romantic comedies over the course of my life. 100 fucking percent of those blow-ups are communication issues. I used to love romantic comedies. The more that I developed good relationship and communication skills, the more I started hating them. I don't even want to watch them now. I just get angry thinking about them now because it is 100% communication issues that nobody wants to fucking work on. And somehow in the end, it ends up being happily ever after without them actually learning any communication skills. It is. It's so frustrating because to me, like, you know, I, I really believe, you know, as long as there is no abuse, a relationship can be healthy whatever it looks like, whatever those people in the relationship need to do to make it happy and work, that is a good, healthy relationship. And that's the big definition. But having said that, I still believe that communication is an absolute necessity. And maybe, maybe you're out there going, you know what, I'm psychic, my partner's psychic, we never need to speak because we're just connected on this, I don't know, Spock mind lock level. Great for you. You, you are the minority that doesn't exist for most people. And, and not only that, but you also are out there thinking, oh, you know, we come from the same background. We come from the same religion. So we must be the same. So we must see this. No, every single family out there is like its whole own little universe or world. And if you come from a dysfunctional family or a traumatic background or a non-normative family, then you are an even further removed universe from the other people because what you experienced and lived and the communication that you learned and the language you learned and what you, how you learned to see the world is so drastically different from the other person. And if you don't talk about this, if you don't communicate, if you don't use words, which is all we really have as humans to really start delving into the nitty gritty of all this, it's going to fall apart communication is is probably the most essential and vital part of any relationship actually having staying power and communication is going to look different for different couples that's one of the reasons why even though self-help books are great they give you some ideas like if you're struggling and you just don't even know where to start self-help books can be great but don't look at them as gospel or law because communication looks different for different people and you have to adjust your communication with each individual partner that you're with. And you may have to adjust your communication at different points in your relationship. What communication looks like between Calvin and I now looks very different from what communication looked like early on in our relationship, because as individuals, we're in different spaces in life, but also as a couple, we're in different spaces in life. Things that applied when, you know, when we first got together before we moved in together. Well, I mean, that's a whole different scenario than once you move into a home with your partner, you're living under the same roof, a lot of things change. And I know in my relationship with Calvin, that 
cause some issues early on. And we really had to, to work to figure out what how communication was going to look for us. And there were a lot of fights, things that didn't need to be fights, but they became fights because we didn't know how to communicate with each other yet. A lot of people give up when they hit that first bumpy spot in the road with their partner and you know they're fighting all the time or whatever. A lot of people just give up at that point and think, well, I guess we're just not meant to be together. Well, no, it's because you need to work on your communication. You need to learn how to communicate with your partner as an individual and how they need to communicate with you in order for you to actually you know, effectively work on conflict resolution and work towards compromises. And that is a thing that has to happen. Compromise, some level of compromise and sacrifice in a relationship is necessary. And it needs to be both people willing to make compromises and sacrifices. But you don't even know what compromises and sacrifices to make if you can't communicate with each other. It may take a while to figure out the communication style that works, but you cannot have a, re a relationship, not a good relationship, a loving relationship with real staying power unless you learn how to fucking talk to each other. It's just not possible. And, and I would say with that, it goes even a little bit deeper in my mind that you have to start learning how to speak the same language. And that's a big piece of communication is learning to develop a language that both of you understand. And and I know this seems odd because, you know, literally speaking, aren't we both speaking English or speaking Spanish or whatever it is you are doing in the relationship? But like I said, you're coming from two different universes. And I'll use a personal example with this. From my background, if you felt sad, then you said, I think I'm going to kill myself today because life is so horrible. That's how you express sadness because that's how you were hurt. My boyfriend's background, however, if you were suicidal and somebody was like, hey, how are you doing today? Your response is, I am fine. And so you have two very different ways to express the exact same emotion. Sadness equals suicide and sadness equals fine. And you're coming into this relationship with two different words for the same exact concept. And that's a big part of communication in a relationship is learning to speak the same language and identifying when you're not. Identifying those, even those specific words or terms where the person says this and you're like, this is what I am hearing. Is that what you were saying? And that's a that's the big part of communication too, is listening and not just hearing, but that act of listening, of taking the data they have and then repeating that back to them in the words that you understood it to be to verify if that's the correct message. And outside of the, the context of even just differences in vocabulary, we're not going to talk a whole lot about love languages today. Uh, we probably will cover that at some point, but that is another thing to consider when you're talking about communication, because while one person may communicate their affection and love through you know, verbal affirmation, telling their partner all the time, like, you're beautiful, you know, you're amazing, I want you to know how much I love you, you know, that sort of thing. Another person may not be very verbal, but they show it in different ways. They may show it through gestures. In my relationship, Calvin is not a super verbal person. And he doesn't always know how to put into words what it is that he's feeling. And he can even get frustrated and kind of antsy when he tries to express his feelings. But that man, of all the people that I have been with, that man will do anything for me without me even having to ask. He helps with the housework. And if I don't, if I do all of it and he doesn't get a chance to help with it, 
he almost gets a little annoyed because that's one of the ways that he shows his love for me. When work needs to be done on my car, I don't even have to ask. He just does the maintenance on it. Like he keeps better tabs on what maintenance needs to be done on my car than I do because that's how he shows his love. And he shows his love a lot through physical affection as well. But I am a very verbal person. So for me, he gets a lot of, you know, positive affirmations and he gets a lot of me being like, hey, I just want you to know that I love you. Or I call him handsome all the time. You know, I'm, I'm, all, I'm very verbal. So that's another thing to take into consideration when you're talking about communication, because some people think that if they're not getting love expressed to them in the ways that they show love, that it means that their partner doesn't care about them. And that is definitely not true. And again, we'll probably get into love languages in a different episode someday, but just to kind of toss that in with a general concept of the importance of, of communication and relationships, it's a really a big thing to keep in mind. And I think that love languages also really then ties into another one of the myths, which is your perfect partner will provide for all your needs and desires. Because if you're speaking the love language of taking care of someone and the other person is speaking the language of gifts, well, neither of you are honestly getting those needs and desires met. And, and there is going to be some compromise in that love language. But even once you compromise, the other person is their own person. They are their own entity. They have their own backstory. They have their own dreams. They have their own personality. They have their own thoughts. And do you know what that means? That means that you are not the sole son of their universe. They exist as well. And, and you have to realize that. We, we go in there with this myth thinking, oh, well, if my partner really loved me, they'd provide for everything. Well, why would they do that? Why are you not taking care of yourself? Because that's part of being a functional adult is making sure your needs get met. And requiring the other person to put your needs primary is honestly very selfish because what about their needs and what about their desires? And so I think that love language piece does really speak to that that big myth out there. You know, if if we really had a great relationship, then you would provide everything for me. You would meet all my needs without asking. You would know all of my desires and, and speak to them. And that's a huge myth we have still. But a lot of people think the, uh, the the person you love should put you first, should put you above everything. And I think that's a very, very, very unhealthy myth. Yeah. And, and you know what that creates the susceptibility for in a relationship is the development of a dependent and codependent dynamic. The idea that one person should have all of their needs met by their partner and the other per person should just have to put all of their needs on the back burner. If you are expecting that one person is going to become into is going to be able to come into your life and provide for all of your desires and all of your needs, that is a lot of pressure to put on another individual and it will drain them. Even if they try, even if they are willing to always put themselves on the back burner for you, that is going to completely drain them. And like Autumn was saying, that's a, that's a very selfish expectation to have of somebody. And that puts so much pressure on them because in relationships, it's not just about whether your partner is good enough for you or good to you or however you want to phrase it. It's also about you putting in an effort as well to provide for some of their needs and to, and for some of their desires, but not all of them, because it is important to still be individual people 
and be able to provide for some of your own needs and desires for a variety of reasons. One, to take the pressure off your partner. Another is just for like your, your own your own sense of accomplishment and your own sense of I am competent and I am capable of doing things. The balance plays out in a number of ways. You know, the, the example I was using before, Calvin doing the maintenance on my car, he does the maintenance on my car partially because I don't know what the fuck I'm doing, uh, but I don't expect him to do everything. There are things that I contribute to the relationship that are not a strong point for him. He's not much of a planner. I do all of the planning and organization pretty much for everything. That is how I contribute. But it, it, the way that we balance things out, both of us are cared for. Both of us have needs that are being met by the other person, but also both of us have needs of our own that we are providing for. I do not expect him to do everything for me or to do everything that I want all the time. And he does not expect that from me. We are both fully competent, capable human beings who can do things on our own. If he was not in a position where he could do the maintenance on my car, you know what? I can take it to a shop. It's one of those important things in relationships to always kind of maintain that balance and always maintain some degree of self-sufficiency because the last thing you want is for your relationship to venture into the ter territory of dependent and codependent dynamic because there is no way for that to be healthy especially long-term. There may be periods of time where one or the other of you has to give more because the other is not capable at that point in time, but to have a sustained period of time, the sustained length of your relationship to have that dynamic where one person is draining themselves dry for the sake of the other person is really not healthy in any way, shape or form. And it's not fair at all. No, and, and I think part of what you're speaking to also goes to the other myth, which are people out there going, well, of course not. A relationship should always be 50-50. Each person should still be giving 100% of who they are, and everybody should be contributing equally to the relationship because it's a 50-50 thing all the time, always. And the reality is, is yes, one person can't do everything and the other person can't take everything. But at the same time, that 50-50 constant that's not going to happen because what you're talking about when you're saying, you know, each person should give 50-50, you're talking about a balance. And maybe you are just super amazing at it. But from what I found in life, balances don't maintain. Balances tend to rock back and forth like a teeter-totter and they take a lot of work. So relationships aren't always 50-50. Some days they're 60-40. Some days they're 90-10. And that's something you have to figure out. You have to figure out where that balance is in your relationship that's going to make that work. And is that balance going to work today or tomorrow or this moment or six years from now? Because relationships aren't always 50-50. And sometimes, depending on what's going on in your life, the relationship may end up being 2-2. Um, I've had periods like that where, you know, we've been going through a lot of stress and there were homeless and we're both unemployed and there's just all this stuff going out. And at the end of the day, both of us are just upset. We're depressed. We need somebody there for us, but neither of us had the capacity to be there for the other person. And we, we both had to admit that said, you know, I, I still love you, but I don't have the capacity right now to be there for you because I don't even have the capacity to be there for myself. And so for that day or that week, our relationship was zero, zero. Neither of us were giving anything into it because we had to function. We had to find a way to keep surviving. And that's that's all right. But if you go around thinking that you always have to be giving into that relationship and maintaining that perfect balance, that's also another myth out there. 
Yeah, absolutely. That is one of the myths that I hate the most. I really do. I fucking hate it when people bring that up and it's like each partner should give 100% all the time. A relationship should be 50-50. Both people need to contribute equally for it to be a healthy relationship. That is not fucking realistic over, especially over the length of an entire lifetime. Let's say you do stay with this person for the rest of your life there will inevitably be times where one or both of you are struggling and maybe those periods of time will be short. Maybe those periods of times could last for years. And that's one of those things you kind of have to track trends and see where you're at and see where your partner is at and whether or not it's still working. You know, don't give up on it too soon, but it's, you also have to also have to look at those things, you know, cause in, sometimes you can start out a relationship and things are really great and you're able to be to find that balance and you're you're able to find something that works and have it be healthy for you but i think one of the other myths that we also need to touch on as we're talking about this is that not every relationship is going to last forever seeing the breakdown of a relationship is automatically being a failure I feel like that's a damaging myth when it comes to love and relationships. Ideally, yes, you would be able to stay with that one person for the rest of your life. And wouldn't that be great? And for some people, they can. And that's awesome. And I don't think you should go into a relationship with the expectation that it has an expiration date on that. I did that for a lot of years. Not helpful. It meant that I bailed out a lot too quickly. But I think it's unreasonable to expect that both partners are going to evolve in such a way that they will absolutely be able to stay together forever. Maybe you can, but it's not always going to work out that way for everybody. And it's not, it's not always the best answer to hold on to a relationship that is no longer working to the point that it is damaging to both people involved or damaging to the children involved. This is kind of a controversial thought, but as a child that grew up in an abusive and toxic home environment, I used to pray for my parents to get a divorce. Did things get better after they got a divorce? And not necessarily because they both got remarried to horrible fucking people, but I used to pray that my parents would get a divorce because I knew they hated each other. And I ended up being a pawn a lot in their relationship. And all of us kids suffered because our parents despised each other so much because they they were not a good fit and they didn't develop the right skills for each other and they probably just shouldn't have been together to begin with but staying together for the kids is not always the answer i know it is difficult and i know it's not always easy especially when you you know one partner has stayed home the whole time and the other partner has been working and you all have these finances that are tied in together and there's custody issues and all that kind of stuff i know that that is not a simple process but relationships don't necessarily last forever and it's not necessarily a failure on anybody's part if they don't sometimes it is because you didn't work on the relationship but sometimes it's just because you grew in completely different ways and you're just not compatible anymore and in those situations, it is possible to stay with a person too long and end up hating each other when it wasn't necessary at all. When you could have parted ways while you were still on good terms, you just didn't fit together anymore. So I think that that idea that every relationship is one that should last forever and ever and ever, that can be a very damaging myth. It's important not to bail out too quickly, to try to work on the relationship, 
but to also view it as a total failure if the relationship does fall apart, that's a very damaging idea. It's very detrimental, not just to the, the, the two people in the relationship, but to anybody on the outside who's impacted by that, especially children. I, I totally and 100% agree with all of that. In my current relationship, we've been together, I think, seven years. Neither of us really knows. But both of us refuse to get married. And that is the reason behind it, is because for me especially, I love that man. I love him so much. And in my mind, because I love him, I want him to be happy. And I acknowledge his happiness may not always be with me. He may grow away from me. And that's part of what I want in my relationship is I want him to have a safe place to learn the lessons he needs to learn to become the man he wants to be and be as much as he can possibly be in this lifetime, whatever that may be. And I don't want that limited because he's trying to grow toward my light or trying to trim himself to go down my path. And so that's a, that's a choice that he and I have made is to not get married because we honestly believe we want the other person to be happy. That's how big our love is. And, and I mean, just to pop a song in there because I love songs, Alanis Morissette, You Owe Me Nothing in Return. I love that song about love. It's talking about, you know, whatever it is, I'll hold it. Whatever it is, I'll, I'll be there with it. And it's okay because I love you and you don't owe me anything in return for that. And it's not saying I'm okay with it. If he left me, I would be devastated because I still love him. But if he grew away from me, I'm not going to fight him on this because ultimately I do want him to be happy and I do want him to grow. And he wants the same thing for me. And now if you do want that relationship to last forever, finding somebody that is going to grow in the exact same way you are growing toward the exact same light you are growing towards is like winning the lottery 20 times in a row. It's very, very near to impossible those odds. And so what really happens if you want that relationship to last forever is one or the other or both of you are going to have to do a lot of trimming and you're going to have to make a lot of compromise and you're going to have to make a lot of sacrifice to make that happen. And for some relationships that's worthwhile. But that is something you really need to decide is what am I willing to give up and what am I willing to allow my partner who assumedly you very much love to give up in order to make that relationship work. And and then I think that's going to tie into one of the other myths out there and this is a big one that love is always enough. And again, here's another song because you know I'm just on a little song thing right now. If you haven't heard it, sometimes love just ain't enough by Patty Smith. Exactly. Sometimes love just ain't enough. I mean, love can be big and love can be wonderful, but sometimes two people are not good for each other. They are not um, they do not work together. They are growing apart. You know, my my last partner, I still love her. I love her the day we divorced. I don't want to be in a relationship with her anymore. That's not her fault. It's not my fault. It's just not what is going to be good for us. It's not what's going to be beneficial for us. It's not what's going to allow us to grow. And that myth that love is always enough. Oh, God, I hate that one. To me, that's love is a factor. But I honestly think if your love is big enough, it's going to be big enough to let the other person go. As much as it would be great if love was enough, that's just not realistic for life. Like you have to have a certain amount of compatibility. And I think Autumn would agree with me on this. That, that was a big factor in why things did not work between our parents. They were two people that felt an intense, deep attraction for each other in the beginning. I don't know how capable my father actually is of love 
but I know my mom was definitely very capable of love. I think they had a very intense attraction. They were very passionate about each other in the beginning, but they were not compatible long-term. Now that compatibility can be for a number of reasons. Sometimes it's because the baggage each person has from their background does not fit well together. It creates unhealthy dynamics. You know, if you are somebody who grew up in a, in a home where abuse was a normal thing, chances are you find another person who grew up in an abusive home. There's, there's a possibility, it's not a guarantee because different people respond to things in different ways, but there's a possibility that because abuse was normalized for you in relationships that you will seek out an abusive partner in the future. So sometimes it's because the baggage that you have does not go well with the other person and it creates a toxic situation. But sometimes it can be things that are outside of your control. Maybe it is a deal breaker like having kids. If one person really doesn't wanna have kids and they're really gonna resent those kids and resent their partner if they have to have kids, and you need to think about that hard before you force children on, on your partner of choice. Because if they love you, you might be able to talk them into it. But if they really don't want kids, those kids are going to feel it. And you're going to feel it. And your relationship probably will fall apart over time because that is a deal breaker issue. Religion can be a deal breaker issue for some people. If you are a very religious person and the other person belongs to a, a completely different religion or you know the other person is not religious at all and is very antagonistic when it comes to religion that can be a deal breaker it's not always but it can be you know distance if one of you lives on a completely other side of the world I mean, in order for that relationship to work one of you is probably going to have to move and you may be in a situation where that's just not possible or you know it's it's not something that the other person is willing to do or maybe you do try to move for that person to the other side of the world and you can't handle it because it's too much of a culture shock or it puts you too far away from your entire support system military service can be another one maybe you can't handle being the spouse of somebody in the military who goes into combat maybe you can't handle the fear of them dying in combat that's a legitimate concern to have. You, you have to make the decision as to whether or not that's something you can handle, but it may not be. And it may not matter how much you love that person. You may not be able to live with that looming over your head, or you may not be willing to be married to somebody who is consistently in those dangerous situations if you're planning on having kids because you don't want them to grow up without their other parent. Drug abuse. Maybe your partner has a substance abuse issue and they just can't kick the habit. Are you going to stay with them forever, no matter how detrimental it ends up being to you or to your kids or, you know, something that you have to think about. But sometimes it does not matter how much you love somebody. It's not a guarantee that love will conquer all and that you'll be able to be with that person forever. And I think that speaks a little bit to where some of our myths come from is what we were, you know, shown growing up. And I won't go into that a lot, but that kind of sets that that base relationship for you and what you do love and what you are attracted to is what you saw mirrored growing up. And it sets, you know, this story that you keep trying to fulfill. And some of us that come from bad backgrounds, some of us that have been through that trauma, we have a love story in our head that is very dangerous for us and that is very detrimental and that is very unhealthy. 
And you love people that end up hurting you or you love people that end up using you. And that's, it's not okay to, to keep doing that because you love them. And even on the, you know, the not extreme side of that, love is just one factor. And I'm an honest big believer that if you truly love someone and they truly love you, then you're going to want them to be happy. And being happy and being healthy does not always mean being together. And I think that also kind of goes into one of the other myths is that love is always easier. Love is always hard. And that's just an oversimplification out there. You know, love does not conquer all, as Ivy said. But love isn't always impossible either. And love isn't always just super easy and it's going to make, you know, everything better. Love is a really, really complicated, complex thing. I, I mean, it's part of what you grew up seeing. It's part of your neurochemical reactions. It's part of your homeostasis. I mean, heck, I would even say that your digestion plays into love. I mean, everything you can think of really plays into love. So just saying that love is easy or love is hard it's not true. Love is complicated. That's another one of those myths. I mean, I don't like any of these myths, but that's another one that really gets under my skin because I hate that oversimplification because that will shift and change over time. Sometimes it is totally smooth sailing and sometimes it's a real struggle to even want to see your partner. There will be times when you adore your partner so much and you have those butterflies in the stomach and you can't imagine being with anybody else. And then there's going to be other times where you're having a bad day or both of you are having kind of a bad period of time in life. And you look at your partner and think, God, I hate the way you breathe. Just you irritate me. There will be those moments there's going to be times when your partner is doing exactly what you need from them and exactly what you desire. And then there's going to be other times where you have these sticking points that you keep coming back to and you keep having to work on. And it's so frustrating that you just want to give up. But labeling relationships, labeling love as being always easy or always hard, that's Swinging from one side of the spectrum to the other, that doesn't do anybody any good. And if you have that expectation that love should always be easy, well, you're probably not going to be able to maintain a relationship long term. If you have the expectation that love is always hard, you're probably going to make it harder than it has to be for no reason sometimes because you have it in your head that love is supposed to be hard that love is something you have to fight for there are people that fall into that where they make problems that aren't there and that can be intentional or that can be unintentional where you're subconsciously creating issues that aren't there maybe because of relationships that were modeled for you before for me watching how my father was with the family in general but especially with my mom there is an aspect of me that just is always fearful of that, you know, my partner being negligent of abandoning me of, you know, choosing work over me or, or whatever, making something else so much bigger of a priority to the point where I don't even matter and I barely exist. There's a part of me that fears that. And I have to stop myself sometimes from getting into these sneaky hate spirals where I'll believe that, there's an issue where there isn't one where I'll think Calvin's mad at me and he's not mad at me. He's just not in a good mood that day. You really want to be careful of oversimplifying the concept of love to be, it should be easy all the time or love is always hard. It's always a battlefield. Both of those are lies. 
It, it really does. And I think, honestly, that kind of ties into one or the other, because when you're talking about loving someone else, you also talk about having to love yourself. And that changes from day to day and what you can do. And that ties into the myth of you have to love yourself before you can be loved by someone else. And that is a huge one. I've, I've seen that in the self-help world. And I have been told that numerous times in my life. And no, just just no. I'm just going to go right there. I'm just going to go no. This is one of the few I, I get really irate about. Because there was a lot of time in my life that I hated myself. I detested myself. You know, my depression took over. Um, just all the perfectionism, uh, the golden child stuff I had as a kid and the pressure of all that. I hated who I was. And that did not impede my ability to love somebody else. I, I still loved with all my heart and I still loved unconditionally all the way. And part of that in my mind was because I knew how precious love was. I felt like I did not have it. I felt like it was a commodity I was not given, even by my own self. And so I understood the value of love like so many people around me didn't. They just took it for granted that, oh, you know, you're born and your mother loves you and your father loves you. And I grew up knowing that my father and mother's issues and my mother's pain was bigger than her love for me. I knew that. And I still know that. And and that scars something deep inside of you, knowing that the person who is supposed to love you the most does not. And I'm, I'm here to say that that really gives you an understanding of how important love is. And you can still give love to someone else, even when you hate yourself. And for me personally, it's also how I began learning to love myself. Because I was the one that said, you know, this is important. Giving this unconditional, giving this love as the definition that I want it to be, that I need it to be, giving that to somebody else, I learned how to give it to myself. I learned how to say nice words and comforting words to another person. And then I took those words and I applied them to myself. And I learned how to forgive when somebody else failed, which in my mind is a piece of my love and what I define love as. And because I was able to forgive them and I said, hey, you know, I love them, so I forgave them, I could move that internally and say, hey, you know, I want to love myself. Maybe I can forgive myself for failing. And so that myth out there, you have to love yourself before you can be loved by someone else or before you can love someone else. Fuck that. Just fuck that. <laughs> I definitely agree with that. That is one of those myths that is throat punch worthy of you have to love yourself before you can love another. You have to love yourself before you can allow yourself to be loved by somebody else. Both of those are such total bullshit lies that like Autumn said, makes me fucking irate. There are very few things that when I hear them make me want to immediately punch that person in the face or in the throat. Those are things that, that do that for me because it is such a bullshit lie and it is such a damaging thing to tell somebody because you are telling that person that it is impossible for them to have love, to experience love until they love themselves. And sometimes you may not be able to get to a point where you love yourself without being loved by another person. And that may not necessarily be romantic love. That can be completely platonic forms of love. I have spent most of my life despising myself. And part of that is because growing up, I, I, I consistently had it told to me by my mom 
that I ruined her marriage, that I ruined the family, that everything was fine until I came into the picture. Now, there were times that she referred to me as her miracle baby, and I knew she loved me and stuff too. But when she was deep in her pain and she was deep in her substance abuse, I often became the target. And all of a sudden now I've ruined everything. I ruined her, her life completely by even being born. And I always felt that I was the source of all the problems in the family, that everything was fine until I came into the picture. Because how would I know any different? I'm being told that I ruined everything. I'm seeing evidence that I've ruined everything. And I didn't know what things were like before. So I didn't even know if there were problems before I came into the picture. So I spent, I've spent most of my life completely despising myself, thinking myself completely unworthy of existence. Now I have healed a lot from that and I'm getting to a space where I can love myself, but I would never have been able to get there if it were not for the people in my life who have shown me love and allowed me to love them and to make mistakes along the way because I have made mistakes. I have not been there for, for the people in my life sometimes when I wish that I would have been or when they needed me most, but they've still continued to love me. So many of the people in my life have stayed in my life even when I've tried to push them away or when I've just tried to disappear or drop off the map. There are people in my life who would not let that happen. Autumn is one of them. She has been an anchor for me my entire life, even when she's been frustrated with me. When we were growing up or even now when if she gets frustrated with me i don't know because she never shows it but if it were not for her i would have had nobody growing up and autumn is always there for me always and when i beat myself up and i'm kicking myself when i'm down she's always there to remind me that i have good traits and she's always there to stop me from doing that i have other people in my life who have been there for me consistently and loved me without question, no matter how much I've hated myself, no matter what mistakes I've made, no matter what stupid choices that I have made that I've gotten myself into trouble for, they have stayed there. And because of that, I had to, at a certain point, look at myself and say, there has to be something lovable about me or these people would not be here. They would not keep trying, no matter how much I push them away or no matter how much I try to disappear. They would not keep trying. I have moved away, states away, because I felt so unworthy and I thought I'm just going to go off and be by myself because I am, I am a harbinger of doom to anybody whose life I enter. I have gone that far to move away from my entire support network because I believed myself so unworthy of love. Wasn't the only reason, but that was a factor in it. And yet... Autumn and you know a few of my other friends who have been with me through the years, it didn't change anything. They kept contacting me. They visited. They went out of their way to be a part of my life still. I learned what love was through these people in my life. If I had not been loved by them, I would not have learned that there was anything good about me at all. I am only capable of, of loving parts of myself now and getting to a spot where I can love myself and like myself as a person because of the amazing people that I've had in my life. And that also includes my current partner. I have always been the broken one in my relationships. I've always been the fucked up one, the one that needed saving, the weak one. That's how I've always been treated by my partners in the past. Calvin does not do that. 
he has not once ever treated me like I am a broken person. Where everybody else saw brokenness and weakness, he saw strength and resiliency and value. I have learned so much about what love is by allowing that man to love me and by giving him love in return because he also has issues of his own where he believes he's deeply unworthy on a lot of levels. I hate when people say you have to love yourself first because it robs the people of the experience of love who really, really need it because it may be impossible for you to learn what love even is if you don't let other people into your life, if you don't try. Logically, like especially when that when that myth is termed, you have to love yourself before somebody else can love you. That doesn't even logically make sense. That's like saying, here, you've never even done basic math, but here's an advanced algebra problem. Now you need to solve this advanced algebra problem before someone can show you how to work through this. How are you supposed to do that? You have to have a template for love. You have to be taught these things because love is in part, you know, forgiveness and it's self-care and it's taking care of people and it's all these other things. And a lot of love is behavior. It's not just emotion. Love is behavior. It's how you act. And if you've never been given a template on how to love, if you've never been shown how to love, how the hell are you supposed to love yourself? You don't even know what the concept is. You don't even know what it means. So you need to learn it from somebody else. Um, so I'm going to move on from that one so we don't just beat the dead horse with that because I feel like Ivy and I could go on for another hour. Um, so let's go on to the myth of your romantic partner will complete you or your life. All of us are just a half just waiting for the other person to come in and complete you. Don't, don't you love that idea, Ivy? Don't you totally agree with that wonderful myth? No, I think I'm too individualistic to believe in that myth. I have, I have way too much hyper-independence to, <laughs> to believe in that myth. I used to want to when I was a kid because it went hand in hand with that happily ever after stuff for me. But that's, that's also kind of running away from any personal accountability as well. I now in my life really value the idea more of two whole individuals with their issues because when you are a whole person that does not mean you are perfect you it, you are still going to be complex complex you're still going to have your issues but you can be your own person you can be an individual you can be whole on your own and I value the idea of being a whole person, entering a relationship with another whole person and building a life and a future together. That to me is more appealing than the idea that I'm just waiting around for somebody else to fill some void in me, to fix me, to, to, to make me not broken and fucked up, to, to take away all of my issues. I don't like the idea of that at all because I, I'm a big proponent of personal accountability, but also because like, man, how, how sad of a life is that to just go through waiting for that one person who's going to complete you, to make you whole, to fix everything that feels broken inside of you. It, it doesn't give you any real power in your own life to, to work on yourself or to believe that you can be self-sufficient, that you can be independent, that you can be whole and a complex person 
on your own. Well, and I, I think that's the unspoken part of that. It says, you know, your romantic partner will complete you. Well, what they're saying is that's because you are not enough. You are not whole. You are not enough. You are not good enough. And you never will be because you need somebody there. And, and I think that's probably, this, this myth is so specifically damaging is because not only is it saying, you know, that, you know, you've got to wait for somebody to come complete you or save you or fix you. It's also saying you need saving, you need fixing, you are broken, you're not enough. And, and it gives you that idea that you could never be enough on your own. You're not going to be able to resolve it, you know, without that. And, and while I'm, I am a big proponent, really big believer that relationships are how you grow and how you work through a lot of things, that relationship isn't what fills the void. And when you go around trying to stuff other people into that void, it's going to eat them. <laughs> That's what's going to happen because they're not going to fill it. That void is something inside of you that you need to work on and that you need to resolve and you need to grow. And then that void's not going to be there. And if you keep shoving people into it, they're never going to fit right. That's not the piece. That's not what you're missing. It's something else that you need to do the work for because it's you. You're trying to heal you. It's not somebody else's responsibility to heal you. If you want to be healed, if you want to be whole, if you want to be healthy, ultimately that's that's your responsibility. And so that I feel that myth can be very, very damaging because it really tells people that you aren't whole, you aren't enough. It, you're always going to need somebody else. And that's a lot of dependency that goes out there. And I think, you know, that kind of goes into some of the the gender roles again, and that's another myth out there, which I hate that this is even something we had to put on there. But, you know, Ivy and I talked about it and we're like, you know, sadly, this is a myth. We're going to have to bring it up. And that was um, romantic relationships should only exist between a man or a woman or even between people of the same ethnic or religious background. And I hate that even in this day and age, that is a belief out there. That, that that's the again that one right way and it's only a man or a woman or only if you both have the same racial background or only if you both have the same beliefs and that is just so limiting and so damaging I, I mean just because there are people out there believing that and they're trying to make things work that are never going to work for them they're just not and because it, it's so shaming for the people that know it's not true for them you know, I mean, between a man and a woman only. Well, first off, that limits it to two people, okay? And not every relationship is going to be just two people. That's the ideal we want to, you know, put out there that that's how it is, you and me, me and my partner. But it doesn't always work that way. And then the next, just that gender, that that gender is going to define who you love. And, and I've been in a relationship that aren't just strictly man and woman. And I used to label myself pansexual, and I realized that's not exactly accurate for, for who I'm attracted to anymore. But I still really believe at my core, I love a person for who they are, not because of their genitals. If I fall in love with somebody and I want to be with them, it's because I love them. I love their soul. I love their personality. I love their humor. I love the way they think. Not because I love their penis or I love their vagina. And, and the idea that you have to base an entire relationship on somebody else's genitals is just whack to me. I'm just like, why is that a thing? I don't get that. How is that 
a basis for love. Oh, you have a penis. Sweet. Now I can love you. Uh, okay. <laughs> I, I had never really thought about it specifically in those terms, but it really does highlight the complete ridiculous, ridiculousness of the argument that love should only exist between a man and a woman because you are entirely basing it on that person's genitals. And I'm sure the people that believe that they would say that's an oversimplification. And for a lot of people that believe that that's coming from a religious, a set of religious beliefs that they believe that, well, this is just the way that God wants it to be or whatever. I'm sorry, personally, if God is that much of a dick, call me sacrilegious, but I don't really think he's like worth hanging out with or worshiping maybe not going to be the most popular opinion. And I'm sure there's going to be people who are not pleased with me referring to God as a dick, but I don't believe that God is a dick because I don't believe that God is, <laughs> I don't believe God is prejudiced in the ways that people are prejudiced. And that's really what this comes down to is like these, these ideas about, you know, gender playing into it and the ideas of it should only be between two people and the ideas that people of different races shouldn't be in relationships together. It's all social prejudice. And a lot of it comes down to that fear of things that we can't relate to and that we don't understand. And unfortunately, society is still in a lot of ways fearful of that which we don't understand or that we can't relate to. It is sad, but it is a reality that is still entirely too prevalent, but it all of those things are myths. It is a lot. Love defies a lot of those boundaries. I, I have no understanding of why race even factors into it. I am in a mixed race relationship, and you know what? I forget pretty frequently that Calvin is Chinese. I forget all the time until you know I look at him and I'm like, oh yes, he is Chinese. I see that because facial features and everything. He looks Chinese. But when we are not together, I forget because it is such a non-issue. There are things that he got in terms of his background and value system and whatever that are traditionally Chinese because his his parents did immigrate from China. But that's, that's such a small factor in who he is as a person. I don't see why race has to factor in at all. Uh, just other than pure xenophobia of people being fearful of people of different skin colors because, oh, they don't look like me and there are cultural differences that scare me and so I should stay away from them and I shouldn't let my children get involved with them either. It's just stupid and archaic. This comes down, like you said, it's the, the, the fear that cultural desire to keep everybody separated and infighting. And, and I think it also comes down to just that communication myth again that well it's going to be too hard because we'll have to talk about things i might actually have to learn to understand another human being and where they came from and if you're not willing to do that you probably shouldn't be in a relationship i think that the underlying thing behind it is that it should be nobody's fucking business love should be about your dynamic with the person that you love or the people that you love but it shouldn't be anybody else's business the idea culturally that other people should be able to dictate who we are in love with and who we have relationships with based on something as superficial as their gender or their race or their religion or whatever. And yes, there are complexities that come with all of those things, but none of those things on their own should be a deciding factor for, yep, you can have a relationship and you people can't. Other people should not be able to 
make your relationship decisions for you. They should not be able to dictate who it is that you love and whether or not that is acceptable because of the genitalia they have or the color of their skin or what their religious background is or what part of the world they're from. Yes, that's that's totally true. And if you're of the mind, well, I only want to, you know, marry somebody else of my same religion. I mean, that's that's a personal choice and all that. But at the same time, it's kind of like, who are you that just at the very initial blush of uh, the name of a religion or the country they came from or the color of their skin, at that very initial blush, you're going to prejudge and say, oh, obviously, I couldn't ever love that person. And, and that's that's kind of quite literally the definition of prejudice, the prejudging. You never gave the person a chance to honestly see if you could love them. And so you just eliminated how many people out of the universe, out of, or I guess just the world. I don't know if you want to go marrying an alien. I'm not going to get into that today. But out of the world that you could have been amazing with. You know, maybe you're so scared that their culture is different. But if you'd talked to them, if you'd seen them, maybe you would have related so much. And maybe they are different. Maybe their culture has set them up completely different. But maybe that's what you need. Because I tell you right now, if I had, if I had been in a relationship with somebody like me, we would have killed each other long damn time ago so i i need somebody different um and then another myth and this is again one of those that ivy and i were just like why do we need to say this but here it is that the role of the breadwinner and the homemaker should be clearly defined and linked to gender roles woman needs to stay barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen man needs to go out and make the bacon that that is still out there. I think it's tied to religion. I think it's tied to that idealizing of past generations, thinking that everything was better in the past. And if we could just get back to that and it doesn't always work. And maybe, you know, in your relationship, you do need to define who is the breadwinner and who's the homemaker, because that's awesome. If you have kids and you can manage to have one of the parents stay home, fucking awesome, man. That's great. You have somebody to be there with your kids. That's great. And so you have one of you that's the breadwinner and you have one of you that's the homemaker. But it doesn't have to be the man or the woman if it's a male-female relationship. You know, if the woman's a doctor and she loves her career and she's able to make buku bucks and the man's got a high school education and the most he's really ever done is retail, why is he going out to make minimum wage and making the woman stay home? Like, it, it's not even logic in my head. I don't get that. But I guess that is still one that some people still have out there, that outdated, you know, men make the money and women do the cooking. I'm sure that uh, you can all tell by now that Autumn and I are not particularly religious because some of these things do definitely link into religion. I, I, we were both raised Mormon. We were both raised with this idea that if at all possible, the wife should stay home and take care of the kids and you should have as many kids as possible and the man should be the provider for the family. I am not saying that is inherently wrong, but I am saying that that is something that should be decided upon by the people in the relationship, and that should not be dictated by society or religion or God or whatever. It should be based on what actually makes sense for the relationship. And you also have to take into consideration as well, and talking purely of relationships that are between a man and a woman, just because somebody has a particular set of genitalia does not mean that they are automatically going to fit within the gender stereotypes. There are plenty of people that don't 
fit into clearly defined gender stereotypes for the genitalia they were born with. There are women that have more of like that career go-getter, you know, dominant personality or whatever it is that you associate with masculine qualities. There are women that have those so-called masculine qualities. And there are men that have those so-called feminine qualities of being more nurturing and gentle and, you know, loving. I mean, all of those, those terms assigning them to either masculine or feminine is bullshit anyway. But even if you wanted to look at it like that, just because somebody has a vagina or a penis does not mean that they're automatically going to fit within the narrow confines of the characteristics that we have ascribed to belonging to penis havers or vagina havers. It just doesn't always work that way. It's another reason why it should really be based on what works best for the family, especially if kids are part of the picture. Because if there is one partner that would genuinely be better at being at home with the kids, awesome. My my ex-husband, my first husband, He's been remarried for quite some time. He has a couple of kids now. He's a stay-at-home dad, and he rocks it from what I hear. I don't speak to him anymore, but from everything I've heard, he's an amazing dad. And you know what? I believe it because when we were together, he had this childlike spirit, and he was fun, and he was creative, and he was adventurous, and there are so many things. And I'm like, yes, you would make for an amazing stay-at-home dad. And his wife is the, is the, uh, you know, the breadwinner for the family. It's not that she's not with the kids ever. She doesn't spend any time with them, but she financially provides for the family because it's what works for them. And sometimes that could shift too. You might go back and forth where one person is the provider and the other person stays at home. And then those roles reverse because of circumstances changing or whatever. That really ties into everything we've been talking about today. And these are myths about relationship. And just like any myth, you have the choice about whether or not you want to believe it. And if you believe and hold to any of these myths, and because you believe in that myth or that myth does not cause any harm in your relationship, or it benefits the relationship, or it works for you, or you're able to maintain a healthy relationship and a healthy psychological functioning because of the myth or in spite of the myth, then believe it all you want. Because again, the relationship is about what works between you and the people or person in that relationship. So if it works, do it. It's just more a matter of examine what your beliefs are. Because some of these can be very damaging and some of these can be very limiting. A lot of these, I feel, are also just intrinsic in our culture and we don't even think about them. And so that's all we really ask is, you know, think about what you believe about love. Think about what you believe about relationships and say, you know, are these myths something that's affecting me? And if they are, and it's a negative effect on you or it's a negative effect on your relationship, maybe you find something new to believe in. Maybe you start doing some myth busting. And then that's going to tie us into this last part of our episode, which I mean, I wanted to talk about some personal examples of relationship myth busting, you know? So you, you, you look at this and you say, hey, that is something I believe. And holy crikey, that has been seriously damaging me, I should probably fix that. Because that's the next piece of it, is once you get that awareness and you say, hey, you know, maybe something does need to change, what does that look like? You know, so let's start out with um, something we unlearned about relationships, Ivy. What is something that you, you always believed or a myth you thought about and you had to unlearn that in order to start being healthier? 
The biggest thing that I unlearned, and maybe this is going to seem a little bit weird to people, but based on my parents' marriage and a lot of other marriages that I saw growing up and in my early 20s and where I grew up, I thought it was perfectly normal and to be expected that you would have had multiple divorces, that you marry really young, you pop out a couple kids, that marriage falls apart, you marry somebody else, you have some more kids. So many of the people that I knew growing, growing up and in my early 20s had been married at least once before, but usually two or three times before. And so I had it in my head that relationships only stay good for maybe three to five years. And then you either split up at that point or you stay together for another five to 10 years hating each other before you divorce. Also, that in addition to all of your relationships failing and just bouncing from one marriage to another, the way to transition from one marriage to another is to cheat on your current partner with your next partner. Those are things that I saw as being normal. And I just thought that's how it works. That definitely had a very detrimental impact on me because I did get married twice when I was very young, once at 16 and once at, I think I was 23. Both of those marriages lasted less than a year because in my mind, I thought, well, that's just what happens. Like you get married and if it works, it works. And if not, well, I mean, it doesn't. And escape route and every relationship has an expiration date on it. And I have cheated before. I am horribly ashamed of that because I have learned because of those experiences. I, I have been, man, I've been on all sides of that. I have been the cheater, I've been cheated on, and I have played mistress before. And I'm telling you, it's shitty no matter what you cut it. But I thought that that was all normal. That is one of the biggest things that I've had to unlearn. And unfortunately, I have unlearned that at horrible expense to myself, but to especially to other people. I have hurt a lot of people because that was what I thought was normal. And I just thought everybody operated that way, that that's just how relationships worked. That's the biggest thing that I have had to unlearn. And thank God I did. What about you, Autumn? What's the biggest thing you unlearned? I, I know it sounds weird. And maybe this is my autistic spectrum or not. But it, the biggest thing I have kind of unlearned about the relationship, which I also have to unlearn about life as well, is oddly, my relationship and the world does not revolve around me. <laughs> When you're in a relationship, there's probably another person. You know, there typically has been when I've been in a relationship. And I've always thought that it revolves around me. I was the broken one. I was the one that needed saving. I was the one in crisis. I was the one with issues. I was the one that things had to change because I was flipping out. And so I know it sounds really weird, but I was kind of that idea that the other person should be meeting my needs. And that was partially the the mentality I kind of grew up seeing with my mom. And it wasn't what happened, but it was the ideal that she wanted, that somebody else would come in and save her, that they would meet her needs, that they would fill that void. And it was also what got set up with, you know, the first couple of big relationships I had, which was that, oh, well, you're broken and you're damaged. And so, you know, we'll, we'll meet those needs and we'll help you fix that. And that's really something I've had to unlearn because one it's damaging to me because I, I have that mentality that I'm broken and that everything has to stop you know because I am that fucked up and that's not good but it's also damaging to the other person because where are they in this where are their needs in this where are their desires in this 
And so that's one of the biggest things I have unlearned is that the relationship is a two-way street. The other person does exist. The other person has needs. The other person has desires. The other person has thoughts and personalities and goals. And they are not mine. They are theirs. And I've actually come to love that a lot. I've really, really come to love that a lot because I, I become a fixed loop and I just keep going in the same track turning it into a rut and so once I actually stopped that and I allowed the other person to exist in the relationship and made room for that and made space for that I grew because of it because I was able to get out of that rut and change and then the next piece is you know one of the hardest lessons we've learned about relationships and I think one of the relationships hardest lessons I've learned and it ties into that 50 50 thing is that we both have to do things equally. And this is really hard for me because, like I said, growing up, you know, mom went to sleep and dad left the house and I got stuck taking care of everything, you know, an entire household. I'm 13 years old, raising my sister, cleaning up everything, you know, 13 dogs, 20 cats, all these animals, figure it out, Autumn. And that's that's been a really big like, trigger for me. And the hardest thing I've had to learn about relationships is that things aren't equal and that... <sighs> tasks aren't apples and apples tasks are apples and penguins so in my relationship right now i do almost all of the domestic stuff in the household and that used to drive me nuts because i'm like you know where is the equitable input into this but as i've really stepped back and looked i'm like okay wait but i'm not out freezing my ass off in negative two degree weather while jake changes the oil so yes maybe i'm doing things more on a daily basis but what about the things I'm not doing that take hours or days to fix? And so one of the hardest relationship lessons I've learned is that, you know, it's not 50-50 and that the energy and the investment you put in can't really be compared or quantified at all. It's not a numerical value. It's, it's a qualitative value. And I'm still learning that. And I'm still learning not to get upset because I'm the one that does the dishes every time. Because... It, it, it's a balance of what we're both able to put in and what we're both good at putting in. What's one of the hardest lessons you've learned about relationships, Ivy? One of the hardest lessons that I've had to learn, the most painful lessons that I've had to learn is that love is not a game. Relationships are not a game. And that it has real consequences. The things that you do in relationships have real consequences. And you have to think about that. You have, you have the power in your hands. If this person loves you, you have the power in your hands to completely destroy that person just by being thoughtless or rushing in because it seems fun at the moment because you're swept up in the idea of butterflies and everything. Because I, I would get swept up in that. And then when that feeling would go away, I would think, okay, well, I guess the relationship's over now and I would just leave. And that was devastating because to me it was very casual i don't feel that way anymore so this relationship is over and i it would come across as very cold and in a lot of ways it was because when i was done i was done and i didn't have any use for you anymore in my mind the relationship was over why don't you get that and i did a lot of damage i'm not generally somebody that really believes deeply in in regret I try to live my life in such a way that I don't have regrets and I, I live believing that everything, you know, you can make the most out of everything that you go through and learn something from it. 
but one of the things that I do deeply regret is my relationship with my second husband. I was in no state to be in a relationship with anybody at all. I had a ton of unresolved issues that I hadn't even begun to tackle yet. There were so many things I didn't understand about love. I still viewed everything way too casually. And, and the idea of marriage was fun. The idea of getting married, weddings, all of that stuff, that was fun. And when I realized that we shouldn't have been together, I realized we shouldn't have been together before we got married. You know, it started out as a long distance relationship. He lived in Canada. I lived in Oklahoma. And it was it was fine before we moved in together because it was all butterflies. And I could idealize him because he, he was, you know, thousands of miles away and all of that stuff. And then we moved in together and I realized pretty quickly, oh, our, our baggage doesn't match very well. But I'm already here and now I feel kind of trapped and I feel guilty for trying to leave. Um, okay, I guess we'll get married. And then when it falls apart, it falls apart and I'll just leave. And that is essentially what happened. But it hit him so hard because he was serious. And he was older than me too. Most of my relationships have been with people who were older than me. He was in his 30s already, I think. For him, it was serious. He meant to settle down with one person for the rest of his life. And he was a hopeless romantic, but he was a hopeless romantic that was willing to do the work. And I was not. And that did so much damage to him. I really, really hurt him when I left. And the way that I left hurt him. And I did get to a point where I was kind of, I was cruel to him towards the end because I was done and he didn't get it. And he kept trying to beg me to stay and uh, talk to me into marriage counseling. And I was so angry because I was like, why don't you get it? I just don't want to be in this relationship anymore. Why are you still hanging on? I didn't realize until later, once I had left him, once I'd been through a few more relationships, would I will say that that was a turning point for me after I left him where I realized, I think, I think I'm real fucked up when it comes to relationships, because it did affect him so much. And yeah, it had affected other people I'd been with before too, but not like it affected him. And that was a wake up call to me that I'm like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty fucked. Like this, this is not okay. I should not be like this. And so I did start really working on those relationship skills and communication skills and, and wanting to be better in relationships going forward. But even though I have accomplished that, it does not undo the damage that I did to my second husband, who was a genuinely, and still is a genuinely good, kind, sincere, loving, honest, amazing person. That is the hardest lesson that I've had to learn because that is something I will carry on my conscience for the rest of my life. Yes, I was in no state at that time to be in a relationship with anybody. And I did have a lot of issues that hadn't been resolved. So yet my headspace wasn't in a good place to make good decisions, but I still have some level of personal accountability there. And that's gonna be something I carry with me for the rest of my life. Love is not a game. Relationships are not a game. Even if it's casual to you, it may not be casual to the other person and the choices that you make and how you treat them and how you handle that relationship could devastate them. I can't help but wonder if based on how I've felt in similar circumstances now, when I've been hurt by people in, those, in the ways that I hurt him, one of the hardest things for me was ever trusting my own judgment again, ever trusting whether or not I was making a good decision in a partner, whether I could trust that partner, whether I could trust myself to choose somebody for me. I can't help but wonder if that's something that he's struggled with. And he's he has been in a long-term relationship now for quite a while. And he seems very happy. And I am so thankful for that. 
but I wonder what damage I caused to him that has haunted his current relationship. And I can't take that back. So of all the hardest lessons that I have learned when it comes to love, the biggest one is that your actions have real consequences and you can devastate somebody and give them trauma that will impact all of their relationships moving forward. So please, for the love of God, be careful. You can't avoid hurting people completely, but you can avoid causing completely unnecessary pain by just being more thoughtful, thinking things through. Actions have consequences. They will always have consequences. So if that's the hardest lesson you've learned, would you say it's also the most important lesson you've learned about relationships as well? Yeah, I would say it is the most important lesson that I've learned in relationships because it was the foundation for all of the things that I learned about being in a good, healthy relationship relationship afterward. Because after that experience, I really worked on myself. I worked on my ideas about love and relationships. I worked on my communication skills. I worked on just relationship skills in general. I am a much better partner now because of that experience with my second husband, but it came at his expense. Like I, I will always hate that part that it caused so much damage to him. But for me in the long run, it has been incredibly beneficial because it was the reality check that turned me around and made me start being a better person and a better partner. I just wish that I could have learned that in a way that wasn't so damaging to another person. What's, what's been the most important lesson for you? For you? Um, I think my most important lesson is communication. I think that's why I stress it so much. I've been a people pleaser, born and bred, I always say. Even in the womb, I was a people pleaser. And so when I got into a relationship, I was also so scared to hurt people and so scared to upset them and so scared to shake the boat that I wouldn't say anything when things started to go wrong. And when you don't say anything when things start to go wrong, again, the other person's not a mind reader. And so they don't know to make changes and they don't know to work on it. And what happens is things just fall apart. And then what happens at that point is I do this messy, embarrassed exit from the situation because it's not meeting my needs and I don't know what to do and it's awkward and I leave. And I, I did that with my two marriages, I would say. It just, I didn't speak up. And I've learned that I really, really have to just talk, just explain things, just open up and communicate. And I've really made that change. But yeah, it's probably my most important lesson is just communicate, <laughs> just bloody say it. Yeah, they're going to get upset. Yeah, it's going to be tense for a few weeks. Maybe you'll have to change the dynamic. Maybe it's going to be a year of uncomfortableness. I don't know. But if you don't start talking, the, the end result is it's going to fall apart. It, it's just what's going to happen. So I've I think the most important lesson I've I've learned from my relationships is I just need to bloody open my mouth and talk. I think that's a lesson that a lot of people have uh, have struggled with and still struggle with because it is communication is hard for that reason, especially when you care deeply about somebody. You don't want to rock the boat. You don't want to risk losing them. You don't want to hurt them. But that, like you said, it's things will fall apart if you don't communicate. I mean, that was another one of the issues that existed in my relationship with my second husband. I did not communicate. I didn't want to. I didn't feel comfortable with it. I would shut him down when he tried to communicate. 
just everything that he tried to do, I just shut down. I just, I just wasn't willing to. When I was unhappy, were there things, I, I don't know that we would have lasted long-term anyway, because I just don't think we were a good match for the long-term, but I definitely could have put more effort into trying instead of just being like, yeah, I'm not enjoying this anymore. I'm just going to leave. Like, I, I could have tried. I could have expressed to him the things that were bothering me, but I didn't because to me, there was no point. My feelings were dying for him. And so when that happens, you just move on to another relationship. Communication is such an important thing that like you can't overstress the importance of communication in relationships. You, you really can't. And then the final thing we really wanted to look at today on this myth busting is what our current relationships and partners have taught us about what love is um, because at least from our current perspective and you know ask us again in a decade and we'll let you know what we know <laughs> but from our current perspective i would say that ivy and i are both in fairly stable and fairly healthy and fairly you know very good for us relationships and that we're learning a lot of lessons from them so what has your current relationship and partner taught you about what love or relationships are ivy one of the things that i've learned in my relationship with calvin it, and it's why i have the feelings that i do now about the self-help ideas about relationships and what they're supposed to look like and all of that is because i came into my relationship with calvin with a lot of preconceived ideas about how you handle relationships and how you handle communication because i have mostly been with very inaccessible partners who i did not get to practice any of these skills with because i would try but they weren't invested enough to actually care calvin was actually invested enough to care but it didn't work the way that the self-help book said that it was going to work i mean i learned a lot of good basic skills from those books to know where to start from, but I also had to learn to adjust and adapt and we had to find the style of communication that worked for us. So that is one of the, the things that I've learned from this relationship that has definitely been game changing for me is that things don't always follow rules. And you can have an unconventional relationship and you can have unconventional forms of communication that can still work and it can still be healthy for you, even if it might look weird on the outside to other people or it doesn't fit within the confines of the, the rules that they tell you in the books. But I think on a deeply emotionally meaningful level, one of the biggest and best and most important things I have learned about love and relationships from being with Calvin is that... I mentioned before how in all of my relationships before I was the broken one, I was the fucked up one. I was the one that needed saving. Everybody wanted to fix me. Everybody wanted to save me. And, and I, I feel like that hung over my head so much, but Calvin never treated me that way. And I've never treated him that way either. Both of us had all of these insecurities and these deep feelings of unworthiness about ourselves. And a lot of that has been healing slowly over the course of our relationship because there is so much power when it comes to love. There is so much power in being with somebody who is able to love you and accept you where you're at right now. Even when they get frustrated with you, because we do get frustrated with each other. We are two very independent people. And even though we have a lot in common, there's also a lot of things that we don't have in common. And so we do get frustrated with each other, but there is never a time when we lash out at each other. There's never a time where it's, well, you're fucked up and I'm fine. You need to be fixed. We never come at anything like that 
ever. It never comes from that space. Anytime we run into a problem, it's a, it's a matter of, okay, this is an issue in our relationship. It's not a matter of you being broken or me being broken. It's just, this is not working. So we need to find a way to make it work. I have learned so much about what a good, healthy relationship is from being with him because neither of us comes at it from a space of I'm right, you're wrong, you're fucked up, I'm fine. It's always coming at it from we're just two different people who happen to love each other an awful lot. And if we're going to make this relationship work, we're going to have to find some way to deal with this particular conflict. So let's figure it out. And sometimes the, the first round of communication doesn't fix it and we have to come back to it again later but both of us continue to try we both put in an effort we both treat each other as equals we both give each other respect we both listen to each other this relationship is so drastically different from any relationship that i have ever been in before and this is the first time in my life that i do not ever feel like my partner thinks of me as being a nuisance or a burden or something broken that needs to be fixed. And I very much hope that Calvin feels the same way because I, I really try to make an effort to make sure that I never make him feel as though he's just wrong and messed up and broken because I want him to feel worthy of love as well. What about you, Autumn? What have you learned primarily from your relationship? I'd say with my current relationship, my biggest lesson has been uh, the importance of compatibility. I, I think I kept trying to find somebody that would really understand me or somebody that was very similar to me. And I realized that's not, that is not, not what I needed. What I needed was somebody that was different than me in all the right ways. You know, that my weaknesses were their strengths and my strengths were their weaknesses. And the, the compatibility was important, it, just beyond anything. You know, you joke about expiration dates. And I just assumed, you know, my first marriage kind of started falling apart, six, seven year mark, second marriage, six, seven year mark. And I was joking with with Jake, my current boyfriend, you know what, well, we've only got a couple years left, we're going to hit that seven year mark soon. Um, and I think we've actually hit that seven year mark. And oddly, very surprisingly to me, things are going well. And it's really weird and kind of concerning in its own manner that they're going so well. And, and I really think a big piece of that is just compatibility. And I'm not going to get into a lot of that today because actually our official episode this week is actually going to be on the importance of cat compatibility and the importance especially of having matching baggage. I think we're going to go ahead and wrap up today on all of the myths and the very big importance of one, even recognizing these myths are out there, two, identifying if they affect you, and three, if they do affect you, learning how to, to change the way you believe and to, to believe in something new so that you can have the relationship that you want in your life that works for you and is healthy. So anything else to add on on the idea of relationship and myths and myth busting today, Ivy? I don't have anything else to contribute uh, except just, you know, if you're if you're enjoying this podcast, and we really hope that you are, please, you know, follow us, like, subscribe, leave us a review if you don't mind. That would help us out help us out an awful lot. You know, comment, like, subscribe. You can find 
us at our website as well, differentfunctional.com, where you can also access all of the episodes there. We have started a Patreon account. So if you are enjoying the podcast and you would like to get some extra perks in exchange for donations, we would definitely appreciate your donations. And we have all sorts of fun little perks lined up. So that is all that we have got for today. And we will talk to you guys again on Wednesday. So remember that different does not mean defective. And we hope you'll join us again next time. My, my.